Hey, welcome back to The Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojai here talking about the brain today. Uh, fascinating subject. I'm actually really excited to get into this. Uh, there's a book called Neurologic, Dr. Eliezer Sternberg, who wrote it. And uh, once, I, once I saw what the book was about, I said, yo, 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 I want this. Because what we're talking about is the brain's internal system of reasoning and basically looking at the hidden rationale behind irrational behavior. There's plenty of that going around right now. And and so I called in uh, the author of the book, an expert on the subject, to talk about it, and uh, we got some fun stuff to talk about. So, Doc, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. So, uh, you're a neurologist. Uh, you're at Yale New Haven Hospital, and um, you've been looking at this neuroscience bit for a while, obviously. But there's also this crossover into philosophy. What got you? What got you interested in the the neurology philosophy blend? Well, I think that uh, philosophy was actually my starting point in all of this, because philosophy is the art of asking big, sweeping questions. And uh, growing up, I had a lot of those, and I wondered about things like free will and uh, and determinism, and uh, and I wondered about uh, you know who we are and and our purpose and all those sorts of questions. And I, you know, philosophy asks a lot of these questions, but uh, it doesn't necessarily answer them in a definitive way. And uh, every time I tried to look into the answers to these questions, it led me back to neuroscience and neurology every single time. And uh, that's what got things started. Interesting. So there's always been this kind of chasm between the brain and the mind. You know, the Buddhists talk about the mind, neurologists are looking at the brain. And now there's a lot of crossover. We're starting to find parts of the brain that can be attributed to things that would, you know, kind of classically be associated with mind and my, you know, things that may not be in body and people had, you know, had uh, religious implications to certain elements of this. And now there's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time, let's just say that. Um, so you've been looking at this spectrum of strange behaviors as they come from the brain. Um, and what have you found? Well, I think the, the, the first thing that caught my attention in, in this area is just strange behavior itself and uh, how so many people are willing to just accept it at face value and not dig deeper. So, you know, I, I work in neurology and uh, we see people with uh, diseases of the brain all the time. Uh, and then there are some people for whom there are no uh, diagnoses, you know, you, you run testing and nothing turns up. And uh, at a lot of places, uh, those people for whom you don't have a diagnosis, well, they're, you know, they're just irrational, they're crazy. There's a lot of names for them, uh, but they're all sort of just covering up the fact that we just don't know what's going on. And, and those are the sorts of things that interest me because a lot of times in, uh, in the history of medicine, there have been strange behaviors, and they've been called a lot of things. For example, hysteria was a name to describe someone who just seems crazy and for whom there's no explanation. But nowadays we know that there's a lot of real disease uh, that explains those things. For example, you know, decades ago we didn't know about the existence of something called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which is uh, an inflammatory condition in the nervous system that makes people, quote unquote, go crazy. And since discovering that, now we're looking for it. And those people back in the day would have just been called crazy. 
So I got to say that what I've noticed in this whole area is if you take what appears to be crazy or irrational behavior and you really do an in-depth study and look at what's going on in the brain of that person, you often find that the brain is actually being quite rational given the situation that it's put in, whether it's compromised by disease or some other state, that it's actually using its own compromised situation and making the best judgment at its disposal. Interesting. So people running around frantically triaging something during an earthquake could seem crazy without the context of earthquake for people to, to judge that behavior. So this irrational behavior that we're perceiving is really not looking at the underlying condition that's driving their brains to make those decisions. Exactly. So in the earthquake example, the context becomes obvious because you know the earthquake is happening. But when someone's acting equally irrationally uh, because of a brain problem, all that is hidden. And all we see is the behavior on the outside. And it's just so easy to leave it at that. How easy is it to detect some of this? I know, you know, we're getting way better with PET scans and SPECT and, you know, QEEGs and all the different things, functional MRIs, although there's a study that just came out saying a lot of the software for functional MRI uh, might be throwing it into question now, some of the, some of the data there. But we got a lot of really interesting new tech showing us things that we couldn't otherwise see uh, previously with the brain. How good are we at detecting abnormalities now compared to five years ago even? So we're a lot better than we used to be, I would say, and the, the techniques are improving, but you have to really know what to look for and uh, know what questions you're asking. You can put people through uh, you know, a dozen different scans, but if the radiologist or is ever reading the scan or the neurologist doesn't precisely know what questions to ask and what we're really looking for, those tests are not going to turn up with anything. So you, the, I think the, the first step is to really ask the questions and have investigations that are targeted. And when you do that and you ask questions the right way, you are much more likely to uh, turn up with answers. Got it. Now, one of the things that you talk about in your book is perception. And the reliability of perception. Um, let's, let's get into that because to me that's fascinating. Perception is, is something that we, we explore a lot in meditation, we explore a lot in esoteric realms. Where as a neurologist does that fall in your worldview? Well, I think the most important rule to remember about all perception is that it, it is an interpretation. It's not a simple window onto the world, as it were. and. With that in mind, that perception can be affected by a lot of different factors. So, you know, for example, uh, perception can trick us all the time. Uh, when you're looking at optical illusion, for example, which is the simplest example, you are seeing a trick uh, of perception based on environmental cues. The brain takes a lot of shortcuts in reading what's out there in the environment and an optical illusion sort of takes advantage of the brain's uh, perceptual mechanisms to trick our senses. So that being a simple example, perception can also be affected by a lot of diseases of the brain. And when you really understand that architecture and 
how the mechanisms of perception are built, you can begin to see uh, where perception comes from and, and how it applies to things like witness testimony, why it could be unreliable, how memories can be falsified, uh, but seem very true to the person. Interesting. So based on the data coming in at the time um, and, you know, the kind of gates that are controlling perception, you can have memories that are absolutely inaccurate, that, that don't really represent what happened then, but your perception at the moment dictated a memory that is actually erroneous? Absolutely. There's a, a pretty famous study on this about being lost at the mall. Uh, it turns out that people's memories are suggestible, especially by uh, people we feel close to. And uh, in the study that I'm talking about, they had subjects uh, come and try to recall an episode where they're lost in the mall, which never really happened. But what they would do is have a family member, say the subject's brother, say, hey, remember that time that you were lost at the mall? And uh, people would be convinced by this. And then they would interview them on the subsequent days. And the people in the study would begin to invent details about it. Hmm. They say, you know, now that I'm thinking about this, I remember the guy in the, uh, you know, striped sweater uh, who led me to the uh, microphone that helped me give a call to my parents that eventually found me. And they was hurt inventing more and more details as they were creating a false memory. Interesting. So the brother who created this impetus for the memory and said basically, you know, forced the memory on him and said, listen, um, you must not remember. So now, now they're creating a narrative so that they're not wrong or they, they haven't forgotten. Like, is it some sort of shame issue of not remembering that then puts them into creating uh, false memories? I, I think that's actually a, a insightful way to put it. I think that the brain is a remarkably talented storyteller. And whenever we are faced with inconsistencies in our lives, the brain has this ability to sort of place it into a narrative to make sense of it. Mm. So in this example, you know, you're being told by someone you trust that something happened to you, but you don't remember. So the brain basically creates a narrative to make sense of that fact and to incorporate it. So does it overcome shame? Sure. And this is just one of uh, you know, dozens and dozens of examples of where the brain does this. Unbelievable. You mentioned uh, an example that I think is uh, is great. It's you talk about alien abduction stories. How do, how are these filled in with the context of what we're talking about? Well, alien abduction stories uh, have uh, have been formally studied because they're just shockingly common and. Uh, a lot of people who don't believe in them would uh, be pretty quick to say that anyone who believes in alien abductions is crazy or illogical. But they've studied the people who espouse these beliefs. It turns out that they're absolutely not. They're of excellent mental health. They're really no different from anybody else. And what's also interesting about alien abduction stories is they're very consistent from person to person. So the typical story is somebody wakes up in uh, a dark room and they have the, a vision of ghastly figures and have weird sensations throughout their body and feel manipulated by these uh, alien figures. Usually they're, you know, ga ghastly uh, white or 
uh, have sort of rounded shapes. So the question is, why are people having this uh, experience so consistently, even though they don't have any trace of psychosis or, or you know, any medical evidence that they should be having this quote irrational experience? And uh, what's interesting is there's a uh, problem in sleep medicine known as sleep paralysis. That's a remarkably close uh, experience. This. So every time we wake up in the morning, uh, there are two things that happen in the brain. One is we regain consciousness. We wake up and see and smell and hear. And on the other hand, our muscle control returns because we're paralyzed during sleep, uh, which is why we don't act out our dreams and so forth. So for some people, there can be a delay uh, between those two features of awakening. So some people might have their consciousness wake up and they can hear and smell and, uh, and see, but their muscle control is not returned, so they're paralyzed. And this is often uh, associated with hallucinations of ghastly figures, can be associated with weird noises, and even sensations of poking or prodding of the body. Uh, so the brain, again, has to come up with a narrative. So you're paralyzed, it's dark, you're unable to move, you're confused, and you're seeing hallucinations of these figures over you. And the brain has to reconcile that, has to come up with a narrative to make sense of it. And if you live in America, where alien abduction stories are common, and maybe you even have wondered about, you know, other beings, that's actually a pretty logical explanation for what's happened to you. It's, mm. it's, it's something that makes sense. It explains all the symptoms. And you are now part of a large group of people who've had this experience and believe in the alien source of it. So going back to the brother mall example, if you are in a culture that doesn't really have the alien narrative um, in, in its ethos and so that you know you have this, this experience but there's no uh, there's no underlying history you don't know what an alien looks like you've never seen a picture of those little guys um, are you likely to have the same experience or are you going to have some other kind of shamanic experience or something that fits in with the narrative that you're familiar with that's a great question and the answer is sleep paralysis is a, a medical uh, problem of sleep that happens worldwide so people in all cultures have the experience, but the explanation for it, the story or narrative that they come out with is completely different. If you go to other cultures, they don't talk about aliens, but they talk about you know, being visited by spirits, or they talk about, uh, you know, one unfortunate uh, explanation is they, they think it's a, like a village rapist who's come in and has sort of a, a ghastly face who comes in uh, some think it's the, the spirits of the dead or, uh, you know, ancestors who come and visit you and sort of haunt you uh, upon waking. So depending on your culture and what sort of uh, ideas are being passed from person to person, people have a different narrative to explain the same experience.
Very interesting. Now, is there a correlation with, say, people who have these experiences and uh, a, a diagnosis? Like, is there a diagnosis of sleep paralysis where someone who has sleep paralysis is more likely to have it? Can we, can we find that the people that are having these dreams tend to also have sleep paralysis? Yes, we can. Most people uh, do tend to have more uh, problems with sleep. And sleep paralysis, like anything in medicine, has a spectrum of severity. So it's remarkably common to have some degree of uh, sleep paralysis. Um, you know, in any, uh, when I sort of talk to, uh, you know, classrooms about this, usually there's a couple of hands raised of people who have uh, had this experience in every class. Uh, but usually it's only for a few seconds. But some people with severe sleep disorders can have this experience for minutes and rarely even hours. Um, but it's, it's definitely a more prevalent finding in uh, people who have alien abduction experiences. That's phenomenal. And do we know where sleep paralysis comes from just, you know, for, for your average person? Like, is it something that is a nutrient deficiency? Is it some, some physiological issue that can be cured? Or we're still trying to figure that out. So the actual uh, mechanism of that uh, disorder is unknown. We know it's associated with a lot of different sleep disorders. So it's it's not a diagnosis as much as it is a symptom of, uh, of, of poor sleep architecture. Interesting. Okay, so if you have apnea, whether it's obstructive or central or any of these things, you're not, the brain's not getting what it needs, and this is some sort of side effect of the architecture of the brain. So you, if you don't go into stage four sleep and get what you need out of there, then you could kind of pop out and end up in the sleep paralysis area. Right. So sleep is, uh, you know, has different phases. There's a rhythm of sleep, a cycle of sleep. And if that cycle is interrupted, then things go haywire. And, and that's sort of the, you know, the vague explanation for why it happens. It's a, it's a problem with the architecture and the rhythm of sleep. I wonder if anyone's looked at alien abduction stories increasing with new parents because, you know, I haven't had normal sleep in two and a half years. <laughs> I, I should start seeing some crazy shit soon. Um, <laughs> so, that, so, so in different cultures, um, uh, it's funny, man. I had, a, I had a crazy dream last night um, where I was with some people and we met some shaman and they gave us this this like little blue mushroom and it was like a psychic this is in my dream I don't really have dreams like this and so we take this little blue mushroom and then I wake up from that experience and I'm um, like hallucinating and I'm like no but I'm in my bed like make it stop and so I like like reach over and touch my wife's hand and I'm like okay I'm here but I'm still having this this state of like hallucination from a dream that I had that I thought I had come out of. So I called up my buddy, uh, my, my shaman buddy, Nick Polizzi, this morning actually, and I'm telling him about this thing. And he's like, oh my God, I've had one of those. And so like, and he wouldn't have remembered had I not remembered. And I wouldn't have remembered if I hadn't have called him for something else. And so, I mean, maybe it is more common than we think. We just don't remember it as much because I don't have sleep paralysis. It's not as disruptive. Yeah. I mean, what that sounds like to me is, you know, there's, there is a, it's not a sort of snap your fingers in your wake. There is a, like a little bit of process and you woke up in the middle of a dream, which often we, we don't. Um, and it, it, it seems like you were sort of halfway in between sleepful, sleeping and wakefulness mm -hmm. and your dream kind of carried over. 
that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really interesting. I'm t I typically don't have dreams of that of that sort. I have messed with lucid dreaming a little bit. I've messed with some out of body things. Uh, what's what's your impression of that? We've had a couple guests on the show, uh, very logical, rational people who you know have been in like emergency rooms and watched you know people hovering over their bodies and, and things of the sort. I don't know if you've looked at any of, any of that research. Uh, I have. Uh, so. Uh, both of those things are, are real, true experiences that, uh, that people have and uh, can actually be induced. Uh, so lucid dreaming is a phenomenon in which people are able to sort of control their dreams as opposed to the dreams just happening to them. So they have an active decision-making role in what happens. Never happened to me, but apparently it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, it is cool. It is really cool. The explanation, yeah. So the explanation is... Generally, the, the frontal lobe, which is the source of uh, you know, decision-making in the brain, is shut down uh, during sleep. So that's why things are, are very passive. But for some people, the frontal lobe is actually active. And they've actually done fMRI imaging on lucid dreamers and found uh, increased activity in the frontal lobe during their dreams. And apparently, lucid dreaming is something you can be trained to do. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, it tried to get, get training. It's actually being experimented with as a treatment for nightmares, mm. uh, which is great because people who have uh, debilitating nightmares, like people with PTSD, for example, uh, if you can train yourself to sort of exit the the terrifying part of a dream, that's actually uh, highly therapeutic. Um, the interesting thing on um, out of body experiences is, uh, you know, they've been reported for years, uh, but they were formally studied when it was noticed uh, in the Air Force that a lot of uh, fighter pilots were having these after making really, uh, you know, tight maneuvers. And they would describe in great detail the feeling of being outside the cockpit, sort of on the back of the plane, looking down, seeing themselves piloting the plane. So... It seems to happen after making maneuvers uh, that, you know, rapidly change the direction of the plane. One thought is that uh, a, a, a quick drop in oxygen uh, in the brain can cause this sort of out-of-body experience. The other situation where people have these are uh, cardiac arrest or, or people with heart attacks, which if the heart stops, the blood's not getting to the brain and people have the same uh, neurological oxygen deprivation. So that's actually a situation where true near-death experience leads to the out-of-body uh, connection, which is something that we, you know, a connection that we've always had, uh, you know, throughout the literature on uh, on, on death and, and mortality. But the fact that you can induce it by imitating that lack of oxygen to the brain, like by flying a plane, is pretty cool. It's, you know, it's fascinating. It's pretty consistent with the whole near-death thing, right? So lack of oxygen to the yeah. brain is sending some certain signals saying, hey, this, is the, this isn't good. Um, yeah. You said something there that, that's really gotten me thinking is, you know, I, I've done training on lucid dreaming. I've done some training on, on astral travel. Um, I had some very profound experiences, and it, it, there's, there's something there. And, and what you mentioned with the frontal 
lobe and the you know the prefrontal cortex in particular is it was it, is it the prefrontal cortex in particular that you're you're seeing it, it is. split up so that's yeah. also the part that we're working during meditation right so so as you become more and more seasoned as a meditator the, the you know we see more activity there and so um, you know I've looked at a lot of studies on this and say you know like density of the prefrontal cortex with meditators and, and things of the sort. Um, there's some connection there because in all of that literature, what is spoken of is really activating this center, right? Which is dead smack center of that. And that allows us to then have control of our dream state. So these guys maybe figured out how to control the dream state that way um, uh, very early on. And um, there's something really interesting in, in that that I'd like to keep exploring. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any colleagues that are looking at that literature in particular, but that's to me that's fascinating. Yeah, I don't I don't know anyone who's directly working on that. I know it's a it's a it's an active area. Um, there is uh, a lot of work also on on, on meditation and then and neuroimaging, looking at that relationship. But I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. It's yeah. uh, it's still a pretty uh, mysterious area, but very interesting, open for research. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. So, you, I mean, there's, like, what about schizophrenia? There's so many areas based on this. Like, is schizophrenia a place where there's just some sort of syntax error, where there's no logical explanation, so that then they have to create a whole new persona to then be able to, you know, metabolize this, this narrative in a, in a way that can, that can be rational for them? Yeah, so... Schizophrenia, I think, represents one of the uh, sort of the classic examples of the, you know, the quote unquote crazy person that nobody understands. You know, everyone has, you know, walked across a busy street corner and saw someone, you know, ranting on a street corner and saying things that don't make sense. And it's just so easy to, you know, pass that person off as, oh, that guy's just crazy. Um, but one thing that um, I, I came upon uh, really early in working on this book is uh research on why schizophrenic uh, uh, patients with uh, schizophrenia hear voices. And one of the most remarkable findings that I uh, stumbled upon is that uh, they're actually hearing their own voices. So during an auditory hallucination, if you were to place a microphone uh, on the throat, you can actually hear the hallucinations themselves. You can hear the voices in people's heads. So then the question becomes, if if it's their own voices, and it turns out it's more than their own voices, it's also their own thoughts, but if it's their own mind creating this voice, why don't they recognize it? And the answer is that patients with schizophrenia have basically a, a block in a circuit of self-recognition, and they have trouble recognizing products of their own thought. So, for example, you know, uh, a patient with schizophrenia uh, may write a song and not be able to recognize having written that one or uh, have trouble recognizing their own handwriting. Um, and what I've also noticed is that when you ask people with schizophrenia, who's, who's in your head, who's talking to you, they come up with actually a pretty consistent set of uh, explanations. And it's usually one of three categories. It's either uh, a religious entity so it's God or, or angels, something like that, or prophets. Uh, it's either uh, aliens or something supernatural, or it's uh, um, something like a, 
an organization with a lot of uh, technological savvy, like the CIA or the FBI, is in my head. And when you think about it, if hmm. imagine you're the brain of this patient, right, and you're hearing voices in your head. The voice knows you. It knows your weaknesses. It knows everything about you, and it has access to your mind and the means to spy on you. Those three explanations are actually the most logical ones that you could come up with. Mm-hmm. The CIA could do it. You know, God or angels could do it. Some religious power could do it, or some supernatural or alien force. And that's just the brain again creating a narrative to explain a really, really crazy experience. That's fascinating. Yeah, we can't leave out the Scientologists because they're all they're always in the head. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just want to get this part down. When, when you're, you're saying that when they're vocalizing these voices, we're able to detect it because there's some sort of muscular activity around you know, the, the voice box that they're actually trying to like, internally vocalize it? How are, we, how are we hearing that the fact that there's these voices? Yeah, so it turns out that there's an entity called subvocal speech which means basically mumbling. So everybody mumbles, and mumbling is when you're trying to think about something, and you think about it so hard that you accidentally give subtle activation to the vocal musculature. And it's basically creating very, very quiet sound. And if you were to amplify it, you can actually hear those voices. Interesting, interesting. Wow, man, there is so much cool stuff coming out of neurology now. Uh, I remember back in what 2001 or so when I first started practicing. I, don't, I no longer practice. Um, I, I was working with a number of neurologists, and it was all just like TMJ and headaches, and you know there wasn't you know the, the the practical application of neurology was basically you know elaborate diagnosis of stuff that we didn't know how to fix, right? And it, and it seems that now it's gotten way more interesting, and guys like you are out there just asking big questions and finding ways to find answers in the brain. Um, how much, like, do you see patients on a, on a weekly basis? Or are you still, like, in clinical on practice? On a daily basis. On a daily yeah. basis, yeah, wow. And so what kind of patients come, come your way? Well, all sorts. And, to, you know, to your point, back in the day, neurology had this uh, terrible reputation of uh, diagnose and adios, which is, uh, <laughs> we wouldn't have anything to offer, which... Uh, I didn't want to I say it. Yeah, which, uh, which is, you know, unfair, but also uh, very old. Uh, but uh, now we see uh, people of all sorts. So my specialty is epilepsy. Um, and uh, there's so many drugs now for epilepsy, and we're able to uh, treat people with seizures remarkably better than ever before. Uh, and we treat people with uh, stroke, with migraines. Uh, we treat people with sleep disorders with movement disorders like Parkinson's disease, so really all over the spectrum. One of the classic parts of neurology that has been uh, difficult to treat and we had little to offer was in uh, behavioral neurology, which focuses on like the dementias, like Alzheimer's disease. And I think even in that area, we're now on the forefront of new medications that are very, very promising. So I think it's an exciting time for, uh, for neurology and for uh, for patients who have neurological conditions. What, uh, and this is a can of worms, but I gotta go here. Are there any interventions that are, 
on the horizon that are promising that are non-pharma. You know, the, the pharmaceutical interventions seem to be getting better off, but I mean, I, you know, I, 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 back in the day I studied with Barry Sturman and a lot of these kind of EEG guys. Um, are there any other, you know, magnetic, uh, magnetic practices over transcranial stimulation? Anything else that you're seeing that's promising that isn't using drugs? Well, uh, I can speak. I can speak for uh, epilepsy, which is uh, my my specialty. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff now with uh, implanted devices uh, in the brain that can detect when seizures are about to happen and sort of just you know stop them before they before they get any worse or before they spread. Um, there's uh, a lot now with epilepsy surgery. So if you can find out exactly where in the brain a seizure is coming from and you can sort of pinpoint you know to the millimeter exactly where it's coming from a, a surgery just taking off a small part of the brain can be curative which is remarkable i mean people who would be suffering with 10 seizures a day can be seizure free these days and uh that's one area and also uh uh, one of the hottest topics now in uh, in epilepsy and uh, high area of research is marijuana. Uh, marijuana for seizure prevention is uh, being actively studied, and every epilepsy conference you go now go to now will uh, have at least one or two talks on uh, on cannabis for epilepsy and um, using canna cannabinoids, CBD stuff like that more so than the exactly. THC. Yeah. Right, and, and, and trying to figure out the best delivery mechanism and uh, and dosing and, and seeing how far it can really go and helping people who have uh, really difficult to control epilepsy. That's fantastic. There, and so from Charlotte's Web down, there's been, I mean, that, that whole industry is... It's crazy what's happening there. I mean, there, there, there's people claiming that it, it cures cancer. There's, there's all kinds of claim, medical claims around cannabis. Uh, very little has been studied, but in this particular space, there actually is study. Like Charlotte's Web, there's, there is research around epilepsy, and we are seeing positive results. Yes. Yeah, there is, and, and we do see some promising results. I should say, on, I mean, on marijuana, there's a, people have sort of. Uh, have you know what we call secondary gain or you know personal reasons for wanting to claim that it's good for lots of different things sure uh, a lot of that has not been demonstrated uh, but I think we're also now in a political time uh, where it's becoming uh, more acceptable to study this stuff and listen you know whatever people's opinions are on it if it can really help people who are sick then I mean that's, that's great that's a good thing yeah, we've had a few guests on talking about the politicization of this thing and just how it went down back, you know, with Nixon and even before in the 1920s. And it's it's kind of a mess. But then you start looking at what it can do for pain. Fantastic. And then I just we just recently had Daniel Amen on on the show, and he was saying that they just did a big study on on recreational pot users and showed all kinds of issues with their spec scans um, and you know finding big gaps in the brain so he's very anti-marijuana for that and you know there, there's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that you know daily use you know uh, recreationally might not be good for you so you know yeah I mean the end of, look if you sell pot you want to sell more pot so you can't you know you got to look at right. r reasonable rational arguments coming from people who are looking at it yeah it's true I mean there are
the long-term studies on marijuana are that it's relatively safe. Uh, there are some consequences. Specifically, it it worsens your memory, it worsens your motivation over time in ways that can be permanent. Um, you know, not to get you know too political about it, but if you want to compare it to uh, you know universally you know legal drugs like uh, cigarettes, I mean clearly cigarettes are far more dangerous one of the i would say uh, you could probably attest to this that if i had to summarize medical school in uh, one piece of advice it's don't smoke cigarettes one of the most dangerous things you can do yeah. uh do for your health yeah it's funny a lot of the the benefits that we've had in this century um are you know in the last 150 years say in medicine have really been around public health sanitation and getting people to quit smoking <laughs> it's, it's done wonders yeah yeah i mean cigarette smoking makes almost everything worse and can cause almost every disease uh and you know in neurology one of the most common things we see is uh stroke cardiologists one of the most common things they say are, are heart attacks. And again, in both cases, cigarette smoking is right up there with most important risk factors. That's it. That's it. And, you know, when you compare it to opioids and all these other pharmaceuticals that people are hooked on, marijuana is just really low in the totem pole for things we should be worried about. Uh, we get a couple questions from the audience. I'm going to kick over to Sean right now. Um, we, we do also live, live questions. So here we go. Yeah. Okay, so I have one from MK first. Um, she's She has identical twins, and one had night terrors for about a year at three, and now has debilitating migraines. Is there any correlation between the two? The other twin has neither, so. Identical, identical twins, one had night terrors at the age of three, uh, and now has debilitating migraines. Any, connect any connection? Between night terrors and uh, migraines. Migraines later in life. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes, actually. Uh, migraines and most headache disorders are worsened by any kind of sleep problem. So every time I see a migraine uh, patient, uh, I screen them for any kind of sleep problems and try to fix those. So I send almost everybody to get a sleep study to diagnose whatever it is that uh, may be worsening their sleep and then, uh, in consequence, worsening their migraine. So that connection uh, is real and important. So uh, helping one helps the other. Great. How much How much of the sleep spectrum, back in the day, I looked at sleep a lot back in the day, a lot of it was oxygen to the brain. So if you desat, then all of a sudden your sleep starts to go. What percentage of, say, sleep problems have to do with just not getting enough oxygen to the brain? Um, well, I would say that it's, it's sleep apnea is the one that uh, uh, is sort of defined. Apnea means lack of uh, lack of oxygen, so that's the one that's defined by it. And because sleep apnea is the most common sleep disorder, that accounts for a huge percentage. Um, but uh, it can be so debilitating. I mean, people with sleep apnea, they get so many problems. It increases your risk of. Uh, well, I mean, it makes you tired during the day, but it also you know, increases your risk of uh, headaches, it increases your risk of stroke, believe it or not. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's a really important thing to deal with. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, I snore, it's no big deal. Uh, it is a big deal. If, you, if you're if you a bad snorer, that's something that uh, needs to be worked out by a sleep specialist. Yeah, yeah amen. Yeah, we got one more question. Yeah, so one more. Um, 
so Ling says that she has insomnia and um, restless legs and sleep disturbances. So are there any, any re remedies for that? Uh, insomnia, restless legs, and sleep disturbances. Uh, she's asking for any remedies. That's uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's plenty, but, uh, with the, barring a diagnosis. But do you have any kind of general advice for insomnia, restless legs, and um, just sleep 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 issues? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of people don't know this that there are sleep clinics that you could go to, and uh, at, at at my hospital Yale, the sleep clinics are some of the most popular in the whole hospital because. Good sleep is crucial, and uh, insomnia is uh, a, a, is a very broad uh, problem. It's like saying, you know, cough or belly pain. This could be so many different things, and that should be worked up by a specialist. Restless leg syndrome actually does have a specific, very uh, effective um, uh, treatment, which is basically a, a, a dopamine-based medication. Um, which uh, has to be prescribed uh, by a doctor. So I would definitely recommend seeing a sleep specialist and those things can be remarkably improved. Excellent, excellent. Um, the book is called Neurologic. Uh, it's out in paperback. Gorgeous cover, by the way. It's really, it's really good. I've been around a lot of books, so trust me when I say it's, it's pretty. Uh, Dr. Eliezer Sternberg, um, out at Yale, still you know, on, on the front line, seeing patients every single day and took the time to write a book. I know it takes a long time to do that. Um, it's, it's a lot of work, but you know, you're helping a lot of people with this. Uh, it's, it's nice. I, I really appreciate when people from the ivory towers help take information and, and, and make it available to the masses because there's so much garbage out there in the mass media. There's so much bad health advice out there. And you know, part of my job here is to really pierce through that and go get real information for people and make it actionable and help them help themselves. So I appreciate the fact that you, you know, you don't need to write a book, but you did it because you're helping a lot more people this way. I gotta say, so are you. And I think, you know, as you know, as a fellow doctor, I, I think you, you know that doctors are really good at talking to each other in general, and that's great and important, but uh, often not, uh, not as well first at, at talking to the general public and, uh, that unfortunately leaves uh, non-experts and uh, people with other agendas and people with, you know, inaccurate information being the major speakers on a lot of medical issues. And uh, I think that doctors need to do a, a better job of disseminating uh, good, useful, accurate uh, health information to people. Yep. Amen. And so, yeah, I, uh, with your permission, I, I would love to call you back whenever something neurological happens. I'm actually like putting together a dream team of people that I really enjoyed having on the show. And then as trending events come up, I just want to call my experts and be like, hey, what, you know, what's your opinion on this? Because you're, you're right. I mean, I've, I was I, when I moved out of medicine into uh, corporate wellness, um, all the voices were these consultants who had no experience in anything healthcare. They were just business people giving people health advice and, and hiring a couple health coaches to, to tell them, you know, telling the health coaches to say what they, they wanted to say. And so it's, it's a real dangerous space when you don't have experts who know what they're talking about. And so I'd love to tap you as an expert and call you when there's more neurological stuff to talk about here. Be happy to, my favorite subject. Love it, love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, you know, if you have any questions out to the audience, let us know, bring it in. Uh, we'll, we'll tag the good doc in there and uh, we'll try to get some of the questions answered. Uh, check out the book, it's fascinating. I was perusing through it uh, a couple days ago. I think that this is, this is the, the 
frontier of where science and psychology and spirituality and all these things are, are meeting. And this is a very interesting subject matter for us all to look at. Uh, check me out at theurbanmonk.com. Give me any comments wherever you're seeing this and I will see you next time.